evidence and answers. What are essentials or basic doctrine of the Christian faith? And are there really non-essentials? Among the many denominations and divisions of the Christian faith, debates often arise. There are disagreements about church policy, six-day creationism, mode of baptism, and eschatology. Some of these issues are more important than others, and it is good to prevent unnecessary clashes and fallouts to distinguish between what is worth debating and what is not. The Bible is clear that some things are worth fighting for. Truth, by definition, is separate from falsehood. So in our consideration of this topic, we must rule out the name-calling and slander that sadly typifies some Christian debate. Colossians 4.6 gives clear instruction about how we should conduct ourselves in debates. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. We can agree to disagree on issues that do not involve salvation or godly living. Our ultimate goal should not be to prove our point, but to model the kind of love and acceptance that Jesus showed his disciples, taken from John 13, verses 34 through 35. No human being has all the answers on every subject. Our goal should be to immerse ourselves in God's word so that we recognize error when we hear it. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucrin. Pat is a popular teacher, speaker, and author in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Here at Evidence and Answers, Pat has provided a wide assortment of different resources for you in your personal study. From audio messages to books and even articles, many are from noted Christian scholars from here in the United States. Head on over to our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Without delay, here's Pat with part two of a three-part message as he continues in his study regarding the essentials of the Christian faith. In my line of work, I get to attend and work with many churches and denominations. Unfortunately, too often I see pastors and Christians denouncing as heretics other churches and Christians who do not agree with their theology, causing much division. Unfortunately, many of the issues are not on the essentials of the Christian faith, but on secondary issues, such as styles of worship, particular Bible translations, the time of Christ's return, the role of women in the church, the age of the earth, spiritual gifts, and so on. Now, don't misunderstand me. These are important issues, but these are not essentials of the Christian faith. These are secondary issues which we can and should certainly discuss but we should not divide over them or denounce others as heretics because they disagree with our view on these particular points. As we stated last week, Christians must be united and not compromise on the essentials of the Christian faith. One of the guidelines that has guided Christians for centuries is this, on essentials, unity, on non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. However, what are the essentials of the Christian faith? The essentials upon which we must stand and not compromise. The essentials that unite us as brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, we went over them last time. And basically, there are about 16 essentials. How do we determine the essentials? Well, the essentials are connected with the salvation message or the gospel and doctrines that uphold the gospel message. Mostly they focus on the nature of God, the salvation message, 
and the Word of God. Now, here are the 16 essentials that I stated last time. God's unity, the Trinity, God's deity, Christ's deity, Christ's humanity, human depravity or human sinfulness, Christ's virgin birth, Christ's sinlessness, Christ's atoning death, Christ's bodily, physical resurrection, the necessity of grace, the necessity of faith, Christ's bodily ascension into heaven, Christ's priestly intercession for us now, Christ's bodily second coming, and then two doctrines that uphold the salvation message, the inspiration and inerrancy of the Bible, and the literal or proper interpretation of the Bible. Those are the 16 essentials that we have found in the early creeds of the church, and they're found taught throughout the New Testament. Those are the essentials upon which all Christians should stand and not compromise, and upon which we should be united upon. Now, on the non-essential issues, those are important issues, and unfortunately, they often cause a lot of division amongst the brothers and sisters in the Lord. In fact, as I stated last time, the greatest division in the history of the church occurred over a non-essential issue. Now, denying one of the essentials can lead to the danger of liberalism or false teaching. However, making non-essentials an essential can lead to rigid fundamentalism or legalism. And so many people get discouraged when they see churches dividing over non-essential issues. And so with the challenges we face today in a post-Christian culture that we find ourselves in today, it's more important than ever that Christians, we understand what are the essentials upon which we are to stand and unite and what are the non-essential issues that we can discuss and debate but not divide and break fellowship over. Now, we went through the first five essentials the other time we were together. So let me finish the rest of the list today. Last time we covered God's unity or monotheism, God's triunity or the trinity. Third, we covered the deity of Christ. Fourth, we covered the humanity of Christ. And fifth, we covered the virgin birth of Christ. And so we're going to pick up with number six of the 16 essentials. And we begin with the sinlessness of Christ. That was taught throughout the New Testament. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin on our behalf that we may become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 2 verse 22 states that he committed no sin and no deceit was found in him. You know, even in the Gospels, John chapter 8, Matthew 27, even the enemies of Christ could not find him guilty of any sin. And this doctrine is important because the sacrifice for sin had to be a perfect sacrifice, 2 Corinthians 5.21, and Jesus Christ being human could be our sacrifice, but also being 100% God, he could be the perfect sacrifice. And this sets Christ apart from all human beings. Buddha could not claim to be sinlessly perfect. Muhammad is commanded several times in the Quran to confess his sins. Only Christ is the perfect sacrifice because he is the perfectly sinless man who is also divine, who could pay the perfect price for our sin. Seventh, we have Christ's atoning death. Now, the Bible teaches, Hebrews 9.22, that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. 
John chapter 1, verse 29, God's perfect justice required a perfect sacrifice for sin. He could not simply overlook sin. And human sinfulness required a perfect sacrifice for our sin. And that is what Christ provided. And Christ's death provides the fullness of the sacrifice for our sin that makes salvation possible. Romans 3.21 verses 26 tells us the importance of the atonement. It lies at the heart of our salvation. God is perfect and holy and cannot overlook sin. There needed to be payment for sin. And in Christ, the just and the righteous died for the unjust and the unrighteous. And the justice of God was satisfied, allowing God to be both just and the one who justifies. Now, there are perversions of this doctrine in many of the kingdom of the cults. Christ's death atones for Adam's original sin, but does not accomplish individual salvation. So now you have the potential to be saved in order to attain full exaltation to Godhood, as in Mormonism, or the fullness of salvation, or to enter into heaven or paradise. The kingdom of the cults teach, well, Christ paid for Adam's sin, but now to earn that, you have got to do good works. Jesus' death is the beginning of the process, but now the individual, through their good works, tied in with the organization, must complete the process. Hey, that would be a faith and works kind of salvation. Christ's death atones for all our sin. Next, we have the bodily resurrection of Christ. The Old Testament taught or prophesied that the Messiah would die for our sins and rise physically from the dead. Psalm 16 states that God would not allow his Holy One to see decay. Isaiah 53 verse 8 says that the suffering servant, the coming Messiah, would be cut off out of the land of the living. He would die. Yet it also states in verse 10, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. There shall be a physical resurrection of the Messiah. So the Old Testament prophesies of the bodily resurrection, the physical bodily resurrection of Christ. Christ prophesied that in John chapter 2. After overturning the temple, the Pharisees asked for a sign by which he does these things. And Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I shall raise it. He was speaking of his physical bodily resurrection. And that was accomplished in his resurrection, as recorded in the final chapters of the Gospels, and most clearly in 1 Corinthians 15. In other words, the body that was on the cross is the one that rose from the dead. In John chapter 20, he had the scars to demonstrate that. Now, the importance of this doctrine, the bodily resurrection of Christ, is at the heart of the Gospel, which Paul preached in 1 Corinthians 15. And he writes that if Christ did not rise bodily from the grave, that our faith is vain and useless. Now, there are several perversions of this view. Jehovah Witnesses believe that Christ's body was disintegrated and he arose as a spirit and returned to heaven as Michael, the archangel. And there are other several theologians in recent times who also hold to a spiritual resurrection. 
That would be a denial of this key essential doctrine of the Christian faith. Now, the next essential is Christ's bodily ascension into heaven. 1 John chapter 2 teaches that Christ bodily, physically ascended into heaven. Acts chapter 1 and other passages in the New Testament affirm that. And in heaven, the resurrected Christ is our attorney who pleads our case with our Father. 1 John chapter 2 verse 1. Jesus prophesied his physical ascension. He says in John 14, In my Father's house are many rooms. I go there to prepare a place for you. In John 16, verse 7, Without the ascension of Christ, we could not have the Holy Spirit indwelling in each one of us. The next essential is Christ's priestly intercession on our behalf. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 states, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Jesus sits at the right hand of God, signifying he has accomplished the work of redemption. Now, this doctrine is important for Revelation 12.10 states that Satan is the accuser of the brethren who accuses the Christian day and night. So without Christ as our advocate, we would not be able to enter heaven for God is perfectly holy and cannot tolerate sin. And Christ is the one as our advocate. Christ makes sure no sin keeps us from heaven. The next essential is Christ's physical return. Now, there are many different views regarding the book of Revelation, but there are teachings we all agree upon or should agree upon as Christians that Christ will return physically to end the dominion of sin and establish a rule of peace and righteousness here upon the earth. That there will be a final judgment of mankind, some to life eternal and some to eternal death, and the bodily resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous. This is taught in Matthew 24, Romans chapter 8, Revelation chapter 1 and 19. You know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 10 through 12, Paul talks about several things that will happen in the final stage of our salvation with Christ's physical return. It says here, but when the perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. In other words, when we attain our heavenly state, when I was a child, I talked like a child, thought like a child, reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Paul teaches that our knowledge will be complete at our resurrection. He teaches our sin nature will be abolished. In Revelation 22, verse 4, he says that we shall see God face to face. You know, John 1, verse 18 says, No one has seen God. And Hebrews teaches that we cannot withstand being in the presence of the holiness of God. You know, in Exodus 33, verse 20, when Moses wanted to see God's face, God told Moses, No one can see my face and live. Well, no mortal individual in our sinful state can see God face to face. But in our glorified, immortal state in which our sin nature has been taken care of and is eradicated 
then we can stand in the presence of God and in the glory of God and see him face to face. That's the great hope of every believer in Christ upon which we all await and have our great hope is the return of Christ and the establishment of his everlasting kingdom. You know, this doctrine is important because this is the final and great victory over sin, the completion of our salvation. This is God's defeat over evil, where he will separate good and evil once for all, rewarding the righteous, judging the unrighteous. There are some who deny the physical return of Christ. There's a particular theological interpretation of Revelation called full preterism. Now, partial preterism, well, preterism teaches that the book of Revelation was fulfilled in 70 AD with the fall of Jerusalem. Now, partial preterism teaches that chapters 1 through 19 have been fulfilled in the fall of Jerusalem, but the final three chapters are yet to come. Full preterism teaches that the entire book of Revelation has been fulfilled in 70 AD, and that would be a rejection of this essential doctrine. It's a denial of the physical return of Christ because it teaches it all occurred in 70 AD, and it denies the physical return of Christ. It allegorizes or spiritualizes away those final chapters and ends up denying the physical return of Christ and the establishment of Christ's eternal kingdom here upon the earth. So full preterism would be a rejection of this essential teaching. Now this ends part two of our series on the essentials of the Christian faith. I'll continue with the final doctrines to complete our list of the 16 essentials of the Christian faith. Remember, let me review that list very quickly before I go. The 16 essentials upon which we stand as Christians, united upon which we do not compromise, are the following. God's unity or monotheism, the belief there is only one God who created all things. The trinity or the triunity of God, the deity of Christ, that Christ is 100% God, God in the flesh. Number four, also the humanity of Christ that goes right along with that that Christ is 100% God, but also 100% man. Fifth, the virgin birth of Christ, that Christ was supernaturally born of a virgin. Sixth, the sinlessness of Christ, that Christ was without sin. Seventh, the atoning death of Christ, that Christ hath paid for all of our sins. Eighth, the bodily resurrection of Christ, that Christ rose physically from the grave. The body that was on the cross is the one that rose from the grave. Tenth, human depravity, the sinfulness of man. Next, the necessity of God's grace. Next, the necessity of faith. Twelfth, Christ's bodily ascension into heaven. Thirteenth, Christ's priestly intercession. Fourteenth, Christ's literal physical second coming, and the final two uphold the gospel message, the inspiration and inerrancy of the Bible, and the literal or proper interpretation of the Bible. These make up the 16 essentials of the Christian faith upon which we stand and do not compromise. 
Others are important issues, but they're secondary issues. Let's not allow that to divide us and break the fellowship as brothers and sisters in Christ. Many of the secondary issues are important issues. They ought to be discussed, even debated. But in the end, we need to extend the hand of grace to one another and continue to keep that unity of faith. Jesus stated, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So remember our model through this series on essentials unity. We don't compromise on those. On non-essentials liberty, we extend grace to one another and in all things charity. As a wise pastor once taught me, he said, Pat, let's keep the main things the main things. So on the essentials, let's be united and not compromise and know what we are going to go to the mat for. But on non-essentials, let's extend grace to one another and discuss these. And in the end, continue to keep the fellowship with one another and not let the non-essentials divide us. Well, God bless you. I hope to see you next time here on Evidence and Answers. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. This study will continue on with a third part the next time we're together. To listen again, head on over to our website at evidenceandanswers.org. Evidence and Answers relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. If you would like to partner with us, please start with prayer and then to donate, log on to our website at evidenceandanswers.org. Join us here next time or on the web for more evidence and answers.